This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. What has the digital age done to us, and is it too late to do anything about it? Tom Wheeler believes it isn't, and he joins me today. He's a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome to the bunker, Tom. Hello, Roz. It's great to be with you. You've just published a book called Techlash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age? Now, the Gilded Age is an American concept rather than a British one. Just remind us what it was. Well, you know, it was a term that was coined by Mark Twain to describe the late 19th century and early 20th century. And and recall that the term to gild means to cover something with a painted coat of gold to disguise what is really underneath. And I think what Twain was trying to point out um, in his book named The Gilded Age um, was that there was great wealth, there was great excitement, there was new technology, but it was really kind of a patina that was covering other problems. And as a frustrated history buff, um, it struck me that there were a great deal of similarities between the period we're living through right now and the original Gilded Age. I guess we'd think of it as the Industrial Revolution, though that, of course, started a lot earlier in Britain. Yes. Um, but, you know, you think about what was the impact of the Industrial Revolution uh, in the United States, and that was what Twain was trying to describe. So who were the big players in that era? Well, the household names were Rockefeller and Carnegie and the great financier, J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, the, the classic line, J.P. Morgan had an amazing line that I think sums up both that period and relates to our period where he said that certain men of wealth can do with it as they please. And, um, and that was kind of what was going on, that it was a period of great innovation. It was a period of wonderful new products. It was a period of lower prices, but it also was a period in which a handful of individuals made the rules. 
And I think we're living through that kind of a situation today where a handful of digital barons are making the rules just like their predecessor industrial barons. How did these powerful men abuse the vast wealth that they had and the vast power that they had? Well, they created uh, monopolies. They crushed small businesses. Um, They delivered consumer harms, worker harms. And there even in the 19th century was fake news that was driven by press barons like uh, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. Awful lot of similarities between the kinds of things that we see today. You know, the names you're talking about, Pulitzer, Hearst, J.P. Morgan, you know, these are all names that are very familiar to us today, but more perhaps better known as prize givers and philanthropists than, than, as, than as robber barons. Correct. And, and you know, fortunately, I guess late in life, uh, they, uh, they, they decided what to do with, uh, with their wealth, uh, which is wonderful and something to, to salute. Um, the question that society has to ask, and you know, the, I, the, the first paragraph of, of TechLash, my book, begins by, by, by saying that, that in an era of new technologies, there are wonderful things that happen. There is great wealth that is created there is um, imposition on the rights of individuals and the public interest until government steps up. And I think that's the kind of period we're in right now. And how did government step up in the Gilded Age? Well, in the Gilded Age, uh, it, it produced a series of reform legislation. Let me back up on that for just a second, Roz, because it's, an, I think, an important point to where we are today. The Gilded Age was a transformation between an agrarian and artisanal economy and an industrial economy that, um, that required a new set of rules dealing with the industrial reality that hadn't been necessary when it was an agrarian country and it was a couple of blacksmiths who were making the plow rather than a huge uh, uh, factory. And so uh, there were a series of reforms that were enacted in the United States. The Interstate Commerce Commission, interestingly enough, was the first federal regulatory agency. It was created in uh, 1887 to oversee the railroads, which were the dominant and abusive network of the time. Then in 1890, you had passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act, um, the first uh, antitrust legislation. In 1906, you had the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act because of the harms that were being visited on consumers by the industrialization of food production. Um, You had the Federal Trade Commission Act uh, in 1914, which both focused on competition and consumer protection. And then you had another antitrust act, the the Clayton Act in, in 1914. And so what we went through was the realization that 
there were never before seen challenges in this new era that required never before seen solutions. And I think that's exactly the kind of situation that we are in today as we move out of the industrial era into the information era, bringing us all kinds of new challenges that require new solutions. Tom, you have a lot of experience of thinking about tech and the abuse of power because you were chairman of the Federal Communications Commission from 2013 to 2017. And that's the agency for UK listeners that regulates radio, TV, wire, satellite, cable communications in the US. How much leverage did you have over the tech platforms? Were you frustrated about the powers that you had? Well, you know, Roz, that's a really good question, and it goes at the heart of why we need to be thinking anew about how we oversee big tech. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, was created in 1934, operating off of a statute written in 1934, when television didn't exist. And um, and the challenge of, of implementing an industrial era statute in digital times is non-trivial, which is why in TechLash, I suggest that really what we need is we need a new focused federal digital agency that is created in such a way and with a statute written in such a way that it can deal with the realities that exist today. You know, there's a, there's a great line that, that, that we take 21st century challenges and define them in 20th century terms and propose 19th century solutions. And so what I'm trying to suggest in TechLash is that we need to start finding 21st century solutions. So it would be a specifically digital commission and it would give you new powers that the communications commission does not have. Correct. Many of us know that we share a huge amount of information with internet platforms, which they use to target advertising at us. But we also know that we're forced to hand over this data in order to do our jobs and carry out basic tasks of living. And this is something that you go into quite a lot of detail in your book, Let's talk about privacy, because it's defined, as far as the internet giants are concerned, as what happens to your personal data after you've pretty much been forced to share it with them. And you argue that's coercion, that's not consent as it is currently framed. Yes. I mean, the interesting thing, you know, the capture of your private information and my private information and turning it into a corporate asset is the basic business model of the dominant digital platforms. And of course, we give up information when, for instance, I do a search on the Battle of Hastings and, um, and, and the search engine knows that I have that interest, probably also knows that I have an interest in history. But is it necessary then for the search engine to follow me every place that I go on the internet and every place that I go in the physical world as they track my mobile phone? 
And the companies turn around and say, well, you've, you've agreed to that. You consented to that. But that consent was an abusive consent. It was, we're holding what you want hostage until you consent for us to be able to take everything. And so what I was suggesting is that we need to have privacy by design, where people are saying, wait a minute, let's only take enough information that we need to do the job rather than everything that this person is doing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Wouldn't that fatally undermine the entire business model? of companies like Google. How would Google make money or would it have to start charging us to use things like Gmail? Well, I think there's a couple of questions there. First is the choice between profit and public interest. And I'm a capital C capitalist. I've, I've started companies. I was a venture capitalist. And I am all for the creative application of new technology. We also need to be thinking, however, in terms of what is the impact on the rights of individuals and the public interest. And the problem is that all too often now, what we end up seeing is those who write code and their investors saying, well, let's do it and not even consider the consequences. You know, when Mark Zuckerberg said that privacy is no longer a social norm and therefore he was going to take more of our private information. Who gave him that right? It's my information. And what we need to do is we need to rebalance that situation. And one of the things I tried to do when I was chairman of the FCC was we passed federal privacy rules for the networks that see everything that you do online. And 57 days into the Trump administration, the Republican Congress repealed those privacy protections. And of course, the main reason they did that is because they are very keen on Mark Zuckerberg's vision, which I think he described as permissionless innovation. Basically, you know, move fast, break things, don't worry too much about the rules, go ahead, invade people's privacy. But that creates amazing new products in the world of the tech platforms, which would simply be impossible to create without them. What would you say to that? I think your supposition is, is wrong. You can have the new innovations and you can have them operating inside um, rules. I mean, you know, so, so Mark Zuckerberg, who I am a big fan of, um, in the lead up to the last presidential election here, tweaked the Facebook algorithm to focus principally on credible news sources, 
New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, things like this, instead of some of the fringe operations, because he recognized I have a responsibility after the election, because that did have an impact on his bottom line, to your point, after the election, he took that off, and we've all seen what happened since then. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is we have seen this kind of make profits by enraging the population before. It was called yellow journalism, and it happened in the period of the Gilded Age. And, you know, the interesting thing is that in that period, the editors of the newspapers owned by press barons like Pulitzer and Hertz organized to create the American Society of Newspaper Editors in 1922. And in 1923, the first thing they did was they came out with um, a code of conduct. And the first item in that code was tell the truth. So what I'm suggesting is what we need is a focused federal interest that will organize the various players who are distributing information and say, let's have an enforceable code of behavior. And, and by the way, the federal agency will have the ability to approve that amend it, and enforce it. But we need to understand what the rules are. You know, Eric Schmidt, the uh, former chairman of Google, um, described the Internet as the largest ungoverned space in America. We need to have some basic rules. Is it possible to have these basic rules in a space where the proliferation has been so extreme? Because I, you know, I absolutely agree with you. We have a big problem in the US especially, but in Britain too, with people no longer having a shared understanding of basic news and facts, because there are so many news and opinion outlets. And they appeal to so many different audiences with different understandings who then splinter off and fail to understand each other's point of view. I mean, we've seen it in the past few weeks with the Israel-Hamas war. Bunker itself is a product of this proliferation of media. Many of our listeners, before we existed, were probably listening to the BBC. But we know this is happening, but there is a sense that we are powerless to do anything about it because consumer choice is king. So uh, when you suggest a code of conduct, what, what what would happen if people didn't follow a code of conduct? How would that be regulated, in effect? Well, the, the challenge is, and one of the fascinating things, is that you in your country are probably leading the world right now in what Ofcom is about to propose in so far as how do you deal with content, in this case content that is bad for children and, and, and others, and, and I'm fascinated by the approach that they are taking that is not we're going to make judgment about the content per se, but we're going to make judgment about the process that delivers that content. Because f free expression is, is a basic right in your country and mine and needs to continue. But... There is a responsibility of those 
who control the distribution of information to exercise some responsibility, which is why I call for a code that is overseen. But status quo ante is not acceptable. <laughs> we, we need to be having the discussion about where do we go from here rather than just laying back and saying, well, this is all inevitable. We can't do anything about it. I think that is a strong a strong feeling among many people and also applies to privacy. There's a sense that it's just too late to do anything about this because they already have so much of our data. So why not have a bit more? Well, let's go and talk about where things go from here. You know, so one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg is championing and, and others is the metaverse. You know, you put on the goggles that take you to the metaverse and they are reading your eyes, your facial expressions, your blood pressure. And um, the, the fascinating, I saw a study the other day that, that when you understand how people's eye movements work, you can turn that around and use it to influence them. Wait a minute. <laughs> let's, before we go down that road, let's ask, is this trip really necessary? It may be for making the metaverse work, but then what's the responsibility once you have that insight into my soul? So put a pin in that. That's the metaverse. Okay, now we're on to AI. And, um, and, and how does the information that is collected about me inform the answers that I am given to queries um, and, and how do we deal with that? So one of the things that is really important, I think, here is that for the last couple of decades, we have ignored the basic issues raised by digital technology, um, privacy, competition, truth and trust, and if we continue to ignore them and don't establish some kind of baseline, they're not going to get better. They're only going to get more pervasive and worse. Why do you think that we've ignored them? Have we been sort of blinded by the sheer excitement of what these new platforms can do? Because I think it's important to understand what it is that is, has stopped us from acting before. That's a great question, Roz. And, and you know, when I was uh, chairman of the FCC, I, I was constantly being told, oh, you can't touch the Internet. You can't touch the Internet. As, as though it was something magic. Because people didn't really understand what it was um, and how it worked. And we were told, oh, you can't possibly understand how complex this is. And if you touch it, you will break the magic. And um, I think that everybody understands that that was not a good <laughs> approach, you know, as we see the effects now. But the interesting thing is we're now hearing the same thing about AI. You know, I saw Eric Schmidt, um, who the former chairman of, of Google, who is a uh, now advising uh, companies and the government on AI on Meet the Press um, a, a, a while ago in which he said, oh, the government can't do anything because there's nobody in government that can understand this. Really? We were able to split the atom 
we took men to and from the moon. Um, and, the, you know, and I keep thinking, so, OK, so members of Congress may not be able to explain jet propulsion and Bernoulli's principle that keeps airplanes in the air. But we certainly have been able to uh, oversee the construction of aircraft and their operation. But the idea that all of this is so complex is just a smokescreen to, uh, to, to, to keep the public and the public interest from having a part in the decision making. Are you optimistic that the tide is turning? And is the current sort of trend for legal cases against companies like Google, is that the way forward uh, to start changing people's minds about what these digital platforms are doing? Or do we need to go straight to the regulation? Well, am I confident that the tide is changing? Yes, because I think everybody is becoming increasingly aware of the consequences of inaction to date. The antitrust cases that you referenced are incredibly important, but they only deal with competitive issues. You know, privacy is not a competition issue. So we need to have a dual prong approach where, yes, you make sure that you enforce the competition laws. And at the same time, you make sure that there is a structure for overseeing the, uh, the responsibility uh, uh, to protect the public interest. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Russ. TechLash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age, is published by Brookings Institution Press. And if you enjoy The Bunker, you can support us by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast. You can choose how much to donate and for how long. I'm Roz Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Liam Tates, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.